Welcome everybody to Hacker Valley Blue, where we get the industry's best and brightest cyber defenders to share their experiences and tips on how you can better defend your assets and networks. Hey everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. As a world champion gymnast and a former foster kid, I've faced my fair share of complexity, and I've learned that the concept of controlling complexity is about more than just overcoming our own hardships. It's about helping others overcome theirs too. After all, in the face of enormous complexity, the best not only find a way to adapt to the challenge, they also find a way to give back. From now until the end of the year, Axonius will make a donation to Friends of the Children for every demo completed. For more details and to sign up, go to axonius.com slash friends. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash friends. This season is all about the color purple. We'll be bridging the gap between red and blue teams and combining their strengths to form purple teams. Join me as I meet with some of the very best purple teamers out there who are changing the way we do security on a daily basis. We're going to go ahead and explore their journeys, talk about their time from red and or blue teams, some of the challenges they faced, as well as some of the successes and benefits from coming together and forming one team to defend against cyber threats from all over the world. So let's go. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I am your host, Davin Jackson. Thank you for joining. We can't speak about bringing purple teaming in without speaking to some of the four people who were there speaking for purple teaming back when it wasn't a, a buzz term or a trendy word. So I had to reach out. And actually, while I was reaching out, this gentleman reached out to me. And when I looked up everything and talked to him, I felt like there was no better guest to have. He is, like I said, one of the first people who were trying to bring in purple teaming. He is a cybersecurity expert and he's also an author. So we got the book right here of adversarial tradecraft and cybersecurity, offense versus defense in real time computer conflict. So there it is. It says it right there in the title. So ladies and gentlemen, everybody watching, please welcome my guest, Dan Borges. Dan, how you doing? Hey, Devin. Great, man. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for joining. Like I said, I know you are a busy individual. So when you reached out and said that you would love to speak to your experiences, I jumped right on it. So thank you for joining. But for those who aren't familiar with you, why don't you just give them a brief introduction? Last year, I wrote a book on red team versus blue team in real time, kind of real time conflict. I've been doing cybersecurity for about 15 years and I've been into computer science for longer than that. And I've been on both sides of the fence. I've done extensive red teaming for like consulting orgs. And then today, my job is I'm a detection and incident response manager. So I really view security as both sides of that coin, both offense and defense. But I think they're different enough. It's like a lot of interesting things to talk about because it's very asymmetric in how they interact. There you go. So thank you for that. When I was looking at your bio, I found it real interesting because that's another discussion that we usually have in the cybersecurity field. But you actually started out as a programmer, I believe. Yeah, I went to school. I have a, a computer science degree. And before that, I was big into like robotics things in high school. And I won a few competitions for that. 
And then as I was getting into college at the time, now robotics is huge with all the drones and everything. But at the time, security was just becoming this hot thing. And I was like, man, I could probably get a really interesting job in security. So I like pivoted in college towards InfoSec. Nice. I know, yeah, robotics is definitely growing. My, my son actually just joined a robotics team at his middle school. I said it wasn't, didn't really have it available when I got started, but it seems like it's a really cool thing to do. That's exactly how I got my start. <laughs> you started with that, with programming and robotics and stuff like that. And then you transitioned into security and you saw it was up and coming and felt like you wanted to get on that. But what was that transition like to go from that world of programming and dealing with that type of environment to now moving into, at that time, it was like a fairly new thing that was hitting the mainstream. I remember when I started, it was like just doing CTFs and little challenges online. But I remember when I was trying to get into security, security was so opaque at the time. Nobody was really talking about how these different hacks were done. There was a few books. I remember the first book I got was the web application hacker's handbook, the WA. And I remember that was so enlightening to me because like he actually laid out how all these techniques worked and what these attacks were. And before that, it was kind of like, oh, here's a tool that does that. And everything was obscure. Nobody was really sharing how the raw techniques worked. It was kind of like secret for a while. Yeah, no, I think everybody who's into pen testing probably grabbed that book for the longest. It was literally the manual. And to speak to its credibility, people still use it to this day. And the only thing that has probably surpassed it is the Web Security Academy, which was made instead of making version three of the WA. So it's a great book. I highly recommend people still get it to this day, even if they're just starting out, even all these years later. Yeah, I'll definitely second that. And it's interesting now, too, because you like you mentioned the Security Academy. There's a lot of like platforms now that I feel like weren't there back in the day. What am I thinking of? Hack the Box and all yeah. that Try Hack Me. All yeah, that stuff never pen, existed. Yeah. Pentester Lab, Pentester Academy, INE. It makes me feel one of the, I feel older person when they're like, back in my day, it's definitely beneficial. Uh, sometimes I wonder, man, if we had that just 10 years ago when I really got started, where I would be now. I'm still in a good spot. But again, we're here, so we did something right. In your journey, I see that you've worked several different roles when you were making that transition to security. So you've been in a pen test, red team, which are different. You've worked in a SOC. You've done incident response. Do you have a favorite role? Yeah, I would say, okay, my favorite role is definitely doing the red teaming. I was doing internal red team at CrowdStrike, and you got to be so creative in that role. And you also got the time to really plan out your assessments. Whereas in pen testing, it was like every week, new client, reports due on Friday, and it was breakneck and can burn you out. Whereas that internal red team, we really got to spend the time to craft our operations and then they were successful and then we could really work with engineers to fix it. And that led into doing a lot of purple teaming with them as they were preparing for that MITRE evaluation. So we can talk about that with some of my most fulfilling work, I think, on the red team side because we got to dig into a very specific problem and then create the fix and watch it get solved almost real time like with the engineers. So I think that's always one thing I preferred on being in an internal team over the consultancies is that, like you said, when you're doing a consultancy and it's one week, maybe two if you're lucky, snapshot in time assessment, you're scrambling. So it's nothing but automated tools. But when you are doing like red team engagements, it allows you time to actually research and figure out not only the vulnerability, but how, why it's vulnerable and craft different things. So it definitely loved that. And it's more, like I said, it's like weapons free, if I'm using the term, when you're red teaming, because it's, no, we have a goal. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to work on whatever we need to do. Whereas, like I said, pen testing, there's always one or two pen tests that you just sit back and go, 
I know I left something on the table if I just had another couple days. And red teaming answers that. Yeah, I think like all pen testers have that feeling like, man, if I just had a little more time, I could have done something extra. Or the classic trap too is, is you're always like, why don't I develop this tool for next time? And then they never, not saying any specific place, but a lot of consulting shops don't want to put the time into development because it's not billable. That little bit of time making tools would make your life so much easier. So you get caught in that catch-22. For me, one of the shops that I'm in now, I made it a point when we even negotiated. I'm like, okay, so if we're going to do this, then I think after every pen test, there should be a time where there's like a lessons learned type meeting where we could say, okay, what did you think we did good? Where did we go wrong? How do we fix that in a solution? So we have that time to research different, whether there's already tools out there or if we need to script up something or anything like that. There are a lot of people who are way better at scripting and, and typing up stuff that, than I am, but at least getting a bunch of people in the room to collaborate, which brings me to the topic of today with collaboration. So we talk about you've had experience with red teams and blue teams and you started doing the collaborating. But what was the moment if you can pick one or two moments that the concept of purple teaming, because I don't think it was known as purple at the time, the concept of purple teaming clicked for you. What was that moment where it was just like, we need to do something different? I remember the moment, not the exact day, but we were doing this a lot, but it was in 2014, just after the target breach, I was consulting with Mandiant at the time. And they had this huge thing called like the Cyber Fusion Center. They were bringing all these different consultants to like fix all different parts of Target. And we were doing red teaming on all different parts of the org. And we wanted to do, at the time, we called them detection tests. And we just wanted to make sure that if we sent a fish, the blue team could catch it every week. And this was really cool. We came up with a bunch of different tests and we had this whole spreadsheet. And I can get into all the things in the spreadsheet if people are trying to do this at home. But we also divided it into three different tests. And we based this on the Jahari window or that thing that Donald Rumsfeld is famously quoted for, which is like the, the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. So for our known knowns, we basically took poison ivy or like off-the-shelf malware. We said Windows Defender should catch this. And we created a little kill chain. We're like, we're going to send an email. We have somebody that's going to click it. They're going to download Poison Ivy. Around this time, we think Defender should kick in, automatically block. The SOC should get an alert. And it's a done deal. Like This test can be fired without anybody being there. And every day, we can change our known known and make sure we just have coverage. But we're like, okay, this isn't that fun. The SOC's not actually chasing anything here. So let's make it a little harder. So we took that known known and we ran it through a packer or like a cryptor. I think it was like Hyperion at the time. So that would like just take the binary and then encrypt it all. And then as it would run, it would brute force itself and then unpack itself. And that would get around Defender. So now we had this signature that people should have known about. And we were like deploying this and it was getting past their initial IDS. But they would still have alerts that fired in the SOC for network C2 or whatever. Our spreadsheet we had, was there an initial detection and then did an alert fire? And then what was the response time to that? So this is where the SOC would start to get involved and they would start to shut this thing down. And then we also had, this was really fun, our unknown unknown, which was an internal rat we were writing ourselves, which was pretty cool. It was just .NET implant and then it would beacon out to a web server. Very fun just writing these tools. But that one, they would struggle to catch for a while. And we basically ran this exercise twice a week, every week after the breach happened. And they started getting really, really good at it. The known knowns were blocked right away. The known unknowns were getting closed in less than a half hour. And then the unknown unknowns, they were able to hunt and find out these connections and shut them down at the end within an hour. So we got really good at just running this test. And then at the end of that 
week where we fired off two tests, we would meet with the team and we'd say, okay, this is how we're going to change it just slightly. You were catching the unknown based on maybe it was the way it was beaconing or a domain it was going to. So we would just change those slight variables that they were catching and we would keep iterating this. When we started, the blue team was maybe catching the known unknown, but at the end, they were so good. They would catch everything within an hour. And at the time, I knew this was onto something. I was writing about it at the time. I was calling it detection testing. And I was we're just reintroducing these things that they should be catching and then testing their processes and seeing how we can just move that line of what they're detecting and how quickly they respond to it. And I think that I later talked to somebody DEF CON years ago and they're like, oh yeah, we're still doing that. And like, we still do that to improve the SOC. And I think when he said it to me, that's when it clicked that, this was an effective program because if they're still doing it, they're obviously seeing the benefit. Oh, absolutely. Just in your story, for one, thank you for sharing that. But I mean, just in the story, you can see the benefit because again, you're firing off these things that should be detected. And now you're seeing it in real time that nope, it's not happening. And now you're actually giving actionable information because one of the blockers with working on an internal team when you're trying to hand it to the security team or the developers is show me the impact. So now when you're doing something like that in real time, you're actively showing them, look, here's the impact. It bypassed it. But a couple things that come to mind, I feel, and this is just my opinion. So folks, just don't roast me on this. I feel like Target and was it the TJ Maxx one? I feel like those two breaches redefined what it meant to be in security. And I know it was a hectic time for everybody who was there at that time, but I would, I think for me, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall or even just in some of those meetings that you talk about. Cause I was in tech and I was starting to get interested in the security, but I didn't jump into anything full on until about, I think a year later when I said I wanted, when I finally settled on being a pen tester. But I feel like the learning experience, there was no way that you could have walked into those scenarios, those breaches and not come out better, sharper, stronger, faster <laughs> with it. Because you speak about it. I think I spoke with Bryson about it a few times where it literally was just a time where it said, oh, where everybody just came together and said, all right, we need to reassess, reevaluate and strategize how we can be better. But with that being said, Target was almost 10 years ago now. So Target was like 2013, 2014. We're in 2022 now. So with that being said, with it being almost 10 years ago, why are ideas that you and your team back then were thinking about then, why does it seem like it's only starting to gain traction now? This is just, again, my opinion. I hope I don't get roasted for this. I think these trends come and go in the industry. And a lot of times it's like trial and error. Like people don't know if these trends will work or not. There's trends that I love that like I've grabbed onto that then I've seen like fade out of the industry. Network monitoring, for example, I used to think like network monitoring was so powerful and you could see all this stuff, but like we've slowly seen that trend out of the industry. And maybe it's just because of the way our networks are designed nowadays with everybody being in the cloud. But um, I think security is a lot of like trial and error. Like not everybody has the answers. And sometimes the industry will come around and they'll be like, let's try this new thing and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. And I feel like purple teaming is something that's stuck around because it does work. Like people have been doing it and it gets them results. I have another, it's very short and it's a funny story, but I remember I was sitting at work one time and I was this detection engineer and I was pitching this idea to management where I was like, we're going to have this environment. We deploy an AWS with Terraform where it's like fake boxes and we can just run malware in it. And then we'll test to see if our alerts fire and we can get in there and basically run new things and write new alerts on it. 
And I was calling it detection net and I was having this intern build it and in love with it. And I remember the CISO came to me and he's like, why are we doing this? Doesn't like Falcon come with alerts that work? And I was like, it does, but not really. Like you got to write the alerts yourself if it's things you care about. And I feel like that's almost a misnomer among security tools in the industry. Like it'll come detecting everything and rarely does it. You really have to set it up yourself. Yeah. No, agreed. I know somebody, I didn't speak to them and get them permission so I won't say their name, but there was something that happened recently and this individual was able to detect it and figure out what was going on faster than the tool in question. I won't name the tool either, but I think that speaks to the false sense of security. There no pun intended (laughs) with these tools is that they feel like, oh, since we're going to get it, it should just work right out of the box. And then the other point is when you said why it Purple team stuck around for so long is because it works. I would add on that it works when they're patient enough to let it work. Unfortunately, a lot of companies, and again, my opinion that I've seen, they want to do it because they heard about the benefits of it, but they don't stick with it long enough to reap those benefits. They feel like just like those tools, it should work day one. And that's not how it works. We got to develop the team. We got to train the team. We got to get that collaboration going. And then we start working on it. And then we'll see the results once we're able to do that. But sometimes they'll be like, okay, let's do this. And they'll give it a quarter or two. And then it's, we want this. So instead of doing that, we heard we can get this tool for X amount of dollars and they're going to give us a discount. The vendor's going to give us a discount and it's going to do everything that you're saying is going to do. And then when they do that, going back to what I said about the false sense of security, now you're like, oh, we have this tool. We spent all this money on this tool. There's no need for it. But they just don't have that patience. And I think if everybody said, okay, let's take a breather. Let's actually take time to invest in our people and our team and invest what the goal is. Not only will you have an effective team and great results. I also think that would probably help with some of the issues that they're having around retention, because when you have a team that dedicates something to a project, it's almost like their pet or their child. I watched it in its infancy grow to be this thing. I want to see it through, but because they just want to, everything is like now, 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 now you're forcing your employees to also be like, all right, well, I'm going to find somewhere else. I was just going to say, when I told those stories, like those success stories, that was just the pretty side. The target thing, there was a month of just meetings where we'd run these tests and be like, we didn't catch it. That'll happen a lot. Like you said, there's so much communication and I'm not showing you guys the messy side where maybe there's a tool you find and you want to go detect it and you'll write up a mock detection and there's like hundreds of thousands of false positives. This detection just won't work. You spent all this time trying to figure it out. So there's a lot of that. And one thing I found too that works really well there is you really have to build relationships between the red team and the blue team if you're doing this. It's everybody's on the same team. We're working together. I'm just trying to get you guys more visibility and insight because yeah, people will get frustrated and give up and like it really does take time to work. And you were saying like sometimes they'll just come in and buy a product and that's really not the fix. Like the fix is people and it's people understanding the technology in depth. And it's wild when you get like a really good purple team going, it almost is like a a threat assessment team as well because they're going to build this knowledge base on the tools and how people are using it. So I really believe in like investing in it, not just tools. I think to build that proactive security model that everybody dreams of having where you're the security team is acting proactively and not reactively. Like I said, I see that happening with that collaboration. So that's one of the benefits I see. But if you could just speak to, we touched on it a little bit with getting that team environment and that collaboration, but what are your thoughts on bridging that and doing the purple team versus the traditional 
red versus blue silo. So I really think bridging it and having that common understanding is really important. So one thing that I'll do is I'll create like a whole wiki with like almost like my own miter pages on each of the techniques and all this background info. If I hit a stumbling block with an engineer, all of a sudden now I have this like great information to show them. They don't think that I'm just like pulling this out of my back pocket. I'm very familiar with this technique. I've thought about it. And then what I try to do is even if it's not like my area of expertise, I'll dive into whatever tool they're analyzing it with. So if they're like, oh, I debug it to see if this fired, I'll download all those tools and I'll try and get that data for them. And then I'll try and help them analyze it. And then it's really just understanding each other's side. If you can show them how the tool works in all these different methods, they might think of a cool way to detect it. If you're sitting there with them looking at all the results in the sim, you might see, okay, maybe this isn't feasible because there's too many false positives or something like that. So it's understanding each other and like where they're coming from, what they can write, I find helps a lot. I think like just my approach to security in general has now shifted a lot. Try not to blame people. Oh, we missed this. It's always, I'm helping you. We're going to help solve this problem together. So I think just shifting your language helps a lot too. And I think you touched on a very important topic about having one side know what the other side is doing and knowing what tools are being used or what projects are being worked on to reach that common goal. Which brings me to our sponsor question, because that was a perfect segue talking about the collaboration and knowing what one side is doing and what projects everyone's working on. That brings me to our sponsor question for today, which is PlexTrack. So something that you touched on actually is a very good point, which you talked about the collaboration and the need for knowing what the other team is doing, what projects they're working on, how that can help to the overall goal. And that's a perfect example of what our sponsor does with their tool. So if you aren't familiar, our podcast this season is sponsored by PlexTrack. This podcast is sponsored by PlexTrack, the proactive cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform, bringing red and blue teams together for better collaboration and communication. PlexTrack empowers teams to communicate findings between red and blue teams electronically for rapid remediation, centralize remediation efforts, and automate ticket generation for faster, more efficient workflows, facilitate tabletop exercises, purple teaming engagements, breach and attack simulations, and more. A better security posture begins and ends with PlexTrack. Claim your free month of PlexTrack and get a copy of our blue team content bundle at PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. Again, that's PlexTrack.com slash Hacker Valley. So Dan, going back to your original answer about that collaboration, would tools like PlexTrack help in that collaboration between the red and blue teams? Yeah, super glad you brought it up because it's something I forgot to mention, which is normally you have an administrative layer there to deconflict. Nothing sucks more than being on the blue team and then thinking you have an active attack going on, start digging into alert and then find out it's like some exercise when you're halfway through. So I think having some tool or like management layer to deconflict and understand what the other side's doing is like super helpful. And we can get into that too, because that's one of my pet peeves. But I think like blue teams have a maturity model, you know what I mean? And like you shouldn't just be jumping into like blind testing your blue team. That's a jerk move. Like you really want this good communication and collaboration layer between the two teams. Yeah. We can do that right now about some of the pet peeves because, again, I'd love to hear more about the benefits of having that purple team, not just the concept, but the mentality and the mindset versus that traditional red versus blue. Because, again, especially if you're coming from consultancy shops or stuff like that, you have a mindset of almost like, depending on the shop, again, my opinion, of we're out to just pwn everything. And then the security teams are like, you know what, we're going to, we, we got to put a stop to that. And it's really not beneficial to anybody because 
all they're doing is essentially hindering one another. So if you want to go ahead and talk about that, the soapbox and the ranting is <laughs> go for it. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, like they're hindering each other. They end up creating work for each other and like they get in each other's ways. And that will also breed that bad blood or that bad cooperation between the teams. If you're doing purple teaming, your goal is almost to break that down as much as possible. You want it to be this like one team kind of life where they don't think of you as the bad guys creating work for them. They think of you as somebody helping solve their problem. But from a blue team perspective, too, there's like a maturity model right now on my blue team. We have active incidents, but when we have active incidents, it's basically me and one other guy that works them. So it's, it's an all hands on deck situation because we don't have a lot of people. The people we do have, I'm trying to train up. I'm trying to help them develop these careers. And I don't want them with their hair on fire every day thinking the ship is sinking because it's not. So if we have an exercise, I think it's extremely important. I can read some people in that they know there's going to be an exercise, that they don't get all spun up and think the world's on fire for a half hour. Because if you're doing this every day and you're doing incident response and detection, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You can't be putting out fires every single day. You're going to burn out. So I think until we hit that maturity where like I can do blind tests and I can see how they're going to respond, which is you need a lot to do in the first place. I need to make sure we have solid detections. I need to make sure we're not like testing a gap where I have no visibility. I need to make sure we have people that are trained in responding and there's SLAs. I don't want to stress my people out more than necessary. I want to build them up to handle it. Again, going back to what we talked about earlier about building that team and investing in the people. I feel the same way on the offensive side where I have a lot of people who are junior folks who they've worked on tools like try hack me or hack the box, but they never really got that real world experience. So I'll bring a junior pen tester or a pen tester with no experience at all on a pen test, depending on the pen test, the size, the scope, the deadline and all of that and say, have at it, go ahead and go through the process, the pen testing methodology, go through it. Because I think there's nothing having that real world experience. It gets the jitters out, especially after the first few ones. And it happens all the time. I just did a network infrastructure pen test, the first one in like four years. <laughs> and when I went back in there, I was just like, oh gosh, what's the map flag again? But I feel like getting that first one or two in the books out the way and getting that experience. And then you start to realize it's not like the movies or the TV shows. I don't have to do this now to save the world. I have time to do it. And it's not click, clack, click, 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 clack. I'm in. There's a lot that goes along with it. Getting that hands-on experience and investing in that junior staff is crucial. And like I said, in my opinion, it keeps the morale high and it also keeps that retention because now all people want are you to invest in them and believe in them. And if you give them an opportunity to show them, to, for them to show you what they're made of, you'll be pleasantly surprised. And I get the argument of, oh, if we train them up or we get them, we pay for all this training or these certifications, they might leave. And it's like, yeah, but what if you don't and they stay? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with them leaving. If they leave and they have a great career, good for them. You know what I mean? I don't care. I'll hire somebody else and train them up. But that's... I want that. I want that for people to leave and have a great career and succeed in security. Cause like we both know we need the people no matter where it is. So I don't want to keep doing this. <laughs> yeah. Let's train them up. Let's absolutely train them up and get them out there. I would like to see everybody like do that. Like as part of my program, I'm trying to get people certifications. I'm trying to, I want you to leave in a better place than when you came here. I don't want you just to burn out and think security sucks. And I will say like I lead a CCDC virtual red team every year. And there I was doing it a lot the way you're talking about with the pen test. Always take a junior. And like they might be up against a team. I make sure that they have a senior or a mentor or somebody they can bounce questions off of on their team. 
Yes. Because yeah, if I just put them up there against it alone, sometimes they might not come back. I'm trying to like build hackers. Yeah, no, agreed. And again, that, going back to that word about the collaboration, it's important because you having that senior person there to go, because again, there are times where you go, did I do this? And just having that, nah, you're, you're doing awesome. Go ahead. Sometimes that's all it is. You don't even have to get into the weeds of, okay, what did you run for this SQL injection or whatever it is. Sometimes all they need to hear is that just that word of reassurance from someone who they trust or that, no, you're killing it. You're killing it. Personally, as a security person, I feel like we always see flaws in everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. My new thing is, is like, yeah, if it's 90% right and there's 10% wrong, you're doing great. Like, I'm not even going to mention the 10% because it's going to demoralize you. And I'd rather just have you keep on. Save it for after and go, if it's not something that's crucial, that's a critical issue, save it for after that and say, look, I just did one where I'm just like, I went in front of the leadership of the company and basically just advocated for this young lady and just told him how awesome she was. Guy even made the point like, why am I even here when y'all could just build her up? Because that's all they need. Sometimes that's all they need to make them spend that extra hour of research or want to go further. And even in that time, and you don't, not that I do it for the accolades, but that individual came back to me and was like, in that three week span working with you, I've done more on that side than I've done pretty much my entire career. And it was almost like, thank you. Thank you. And I'm no, don't thank me. Because again, this is, we're a team and as a team, I also have to trust in you as much as you trust in me. And I can't trust in you if I'm trying to be, not to use this word, but the gatekeeper of information. Because I think that's the other thing is, oh, we can't let them know all our secrets. And again, that goes back to that red versus blue silo and that need yeah. <laughs> to collaborate because we need to know each other's secrets. We because do. If you don't know how I got into this or what I did to hide this exploit, how are you going to attack it? How are you going to do it when an APT tries it? And if the blue team isn't telling you what their shiny new toy is for detection, that's catching all of your stuff, how effective are your internal pen tests or internal rent team engagements if you're failing it at every time? And that's because they have this rabbit in the hat that they can just rely on and you don't know how to beat it. Exactly. The secret knowledge only hurts yourself and your own progress. And it just stinks because like sometimes you do get those people that have an ego about it and they're like, oh, I beat them and I did it. And that's what ruins that. It's not me versus them. It's us on the same team. I always quote this thing because like it was in this Michael Hayden book and he did it like the wrong way, I think, with the whole war crimes, but it's playing <laughs> to the edge. It's going as far as you can and pushing each other to get better and go as far as possible. You got to reveal your secrets because you're going to get better by doing it. We do this a lot on the CCDC Red Team. We had these like packers and crazy stuff. Even in my book, here's what we do. Here's our secrets. Here's the techniques I use. I burn it. And every year somebody's, aren't you like worried about burning your technique and nothing working? And I'm like, I got to get better, man. I got to get new techniques. Like, yeah, I'm worried about it. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question was, so in that need for collaboration and sharing that information, is that was that the leading factor into writing that book? And what was that process like? Because we all have notes. We all have notes. We all have thoughts. We all have ideas. But then to put that into a book and get a publisher to say, we love it. And now you have to take your notes and essentially polish it 
for someone else. What was that process like? And then also tell me how nerve wracking it probably was to say, okay, these are my thoughts. And now you're putting it out to probably one of the most critical communities, unfortunately. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So inspiration for the book was definitely the CCDC teams. Like I saw these blue teams coming in and every year I felt like some teams were doing good and then other teams weren't. And I was like, why? Like what is happening here? And what I arrived at is what I think is institutional knowledge. Like some of these schools just have really good programs. And then Mm -hmm. those programs are taking notes year over year and like giving that to the new students coming in. So the problem you get is basically this churn of students every four years or whatever. You may lose all institutional knowledge in your club. So there's so many lessons learned here that we're just repeating every single year. I'm just going to write them down and try and even the playing field there. So that was a large part of it. I mentioned things in there like understanding root calls. And that's something that Dave Cohen, the leader of the CCDC Red Team, just repeats every single year. You're going to try and knee-jerk reaction to something. You're going to try and block an IP right away. But what you'll get more value out of is understanding like where did that process start? How did that happen? Instead of just like smashing that block button. That's what I was trying to do is draw these lessons out. And then also I'm just like, very explicit. So I'm also like, here's the exact technologies. Here's how I would catch them. And really just trying to give people this leg up against me. How would I beat me in one of these competitions? But you're doing it for both sides. Because on one hand, you're telling the defending side, this is how you get a one up on them. But then you're also saying, however, if you do this, there's good chance that you might bypass any detection. And I love that. And then again, to your point about the root cause thing, I thought that was brilliant because that's one of the things that I try to instill with my junior team is, okay, so you scanned it, you verified it, you know that it's vulnerable to this vulnerability. Okay, so you know what the vulnerability is, but why is that the vulnerability? Because there might be a time where if you know that, have that knowledge, you know that it might be vulnerable to something like this attack or like this exploit, but it's a little bit different. But if you can figure out why and how it's vulnerable, you might be able to craft your own exploit to get this one to work because maybe the Metasploit module for that one isn't going to work because it's not the same technology or it might be a different version of it, but you know it's there. And again, going back to what we were talking about, sometimes you go on a pen test and you're going, I know it's there. I think when I, I won't name the exam that I did, but I was doing an exam one time and I kept, I remember beating myself. I know, I'm like, I know the RFI is there. I know it's there. I know it's there, but I couldn't flesh it out. But that's back when I'm like, I'm just going because I know the vulnerability exists. I don't know why it exists, how it exists. So I speak to that root cause that you mentioned, because I think that makes it a better understanding as to saying, even and even when you have to explain to it in the report, because sometimes you you do a report reading and go, oh, this was vulnerable to to Eternal Blue. Why? Oh, because I scanned it and it said vulnerable to Eternal Blue. But did you actually flesh it out? Did you check the SMB version? Stuff like that. No, it's such a good thing to to talk on. And I had prepared like an alternative thing to talk about before we were talking about purple teaming here. And it was all about these knee-jerk reactions as a blue team. And really my whole takeaway from in so many things in life is just stop a moment before you react and think about your reaction and be like, is there a better way to do this? Because like it's adversarial. If you're going to do this reaction, are they ready for that reaction? And is there something more tricky you could do to throw them off? And if we bring this back to pen testing, something I see a lot is like, when students or whoever, like they hit this brick wall, they do this thing I called flailing where they just try everything. It's like the Hail Mary attack or they'll just scan again and again. And like a lot of times it doesn't really help you. Like you probably have all the information you already need. 
And what you're doing is you're just creating all this noise and pen testing and computer security is so specific. You got to find the exact right spot and get this this request exactly. I've never really seen flailing help somebody, but I see people do it all the time where they're like, ah, shit, what do I do? And it sucks. Like, I think we've all been there and it's weird. Honestly, like some of the best answers are just like, keep Googling, keep reading, keep trying to research or take a walk and think about it. But take that step back and think about all the information you already have. And like you were saying, like, why is this happening? And I find it gets you a lot further. But the default reaction is always, oh, alert fired, hit the block button, you know what I mean? And it's, wait a second, let's just slow down a second and think about it. Why did it fire? What was there? Is it a honeypot? Is it all these things? How long did it take for it to detect it? Can we find a way to do it sooner? You know, those are so many follow-up questions that you could have. But it's funny that you mentioned having that moment and taking a step back because it might be showing my age a little bit. There was a show back in the day called House, the Dr. House. I was like a big fan of how his brain worked, right? And he couldn't figure out the patient, whatever the diagnosis was, all episode. And then some random thing would happen and it would be like, oh, that's what it is. Nine times out of 10, it was like sarcoidosis. I don't know. But my wife used to tease me because I would be stuck on something. And I'm like, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. And there were literally times where like, we'd be laying in bed and it'd be like four in the morning. And I go, ah, and I jump out of bed and she, and at first it startled her. And then after a while, I was like, you had your, you had another house moment. <laughs> but sometimes that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. Like you can sit there and you go, I need to step away. Cause if you sit there and step, jump in front of the keyboard and you keep pressing the different buttons and you're like, cause I know it's there and you just stick to at that moment, you feel like you're under the gun and you're trying to stick to what you know. And doing that, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different outcome. That's what you're doing. You're driving yourself insane, wondering why this exploit won't fire. You try to find different versions of it. You go to exploit DB, you go to Google, you download this from the CVE stuff. You go over here, you check MITRE and you do all this other stuff. And it's like, it's just not working. But I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> Such a familiar <laughs> right? <And> then, feeling. <laughs> but then for me, with the spray and pray, I feel like, especially with when working with junior staff, and I let them do it, actually, believe it or not. But I wait till the last day. So, it's, okay, I know you want to do this so bad during throughout the pen test, but I need you to focus on it. And then at the end of it, where I go, okay, do you think you found everything? Are you good? Spray and pray. Go for it. Just avoid doing anything that will cause a denial of service because Lord knows we never want that to happen. (laughs) It's funny too. So we're talking about like this one team stuff and like working with blue teams and red teams and like really trying to be that buddy. And we've had a saying that's developed out of that. And I don't know if it's like from this like passive security approach because a lot of times in security, you could just say no and you can be like come down with the hammer and really be a dick. But we've developed this saying. It's like sometimes you got to let somebody fail. Sometimes you got to let them do it and learn the lesson and the impact's not big enough. It's just better that way. It's just better that they see for themselves why this was a bad idea or whatever. That's one of the lessons I say to my kids. It's not about how you mess up. It's how you recover. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because you're going to fail. No one's perfect. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. And having that management or leadership team that allows you to fail makes it so much easier to go through it because sometimes we're failing because we have imposter syndrome issues and we feel like we need to do something. We need to win. And you do it and you fail and then you're being chastised for failing. Whereas it's okay. No, you failed. Cool. What did you learn? Yeah, yeah. And now now if you make the same mistake, 
after you learn the lesson, now we need to have a conversation. It's cool you said that too, because honestly, sometimes failing can be an opportunity. We had this one time we were doing this pen test at like a large bank and we fired off this scan and the scan was too fast and it like tripped some alert they had on a router and it like locked systems down because like just too many connections in parallel or whatever. So they bring all the pen testers in and like we were catching the heat because we were the team that actually did it. But then I was like, well, wait a second, do they have any standards in place? Like, why don't we write the scanning standards and then we'll apply that to all the teams? At first it was us getting admonished, but then it turned into us setting the bar for everybody. And you can turn a bad thing into a win sometimes based on how you respond to it. Fail upward. Yeah. Fail upward. I love it. I love it. So going back to the book, for those who might have seen the book or are interested in the book, but haven't bought it yet, what could they expect from the book? So the book, you were saying it goes back and forth from a red team perspective to a blue team perspective. And it's all about setting up and preparing for, it could be a security competition, but it's basically two hackers on a network. And I talk about the book in red team and blue team in general. And I say, these are asymmetric operations. There's different tools on the blue team and it takes different skills. Same with the red team. And while they're both like attacking the same thing, it's two different techniques. We have to look at it from the other sides. It's just like a lot of like gotchas. Here's adversarially, if there's somebody on your machine, here's how you can kick them out and take control of this computer, whether you're on the offense or the defense. It's saying, oh, let's say you're setting up infrastructure to attack somebody. Like, here's how you can make that anonymous or not get caught. It's looking at these techniques from both perspectives and applying them generally. And then it's a lot of lessons learned from my time doing this. I've been attacking somebody and they found my code this way. Or here's how I stopped like a real campaign of attackers doing this technique. So I think it's a lot of practical advice. And then I also include a lot of theory in there, just things to think about in general. I have all these, the principle of economy, each side only has so many people, so much time and expertise. And it's not like they have a magic infinite army. It's important to think about those things when you're thinking about somebody attacking you or somebody defending something. No, definitely. Like I said, I'm trying to get some more free time to finish it. For those who want to know about it again, it's called Adversarial Tradecraft and Cybersecurity. It's a nice book here from PAC Publishing, Offense versus Defense in Real-Time Computer Conflict. So again, thank you. And like I said, it is it says expert insight on the top, and I would agree 100%. So again, thank you for writing that. Thank you for sharing that information and going through the whole writing and editing process, because I know it's just a pain. Yeah, and but, same. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for the podcast, man. And you said earlier, you bigged up one of your employees, and then you're like, why am I here? And this is exactly it. You're making hackers, and you're making the future and influencing people. And I think that's why I wrote the book. And I think that's why a lot of us give back to the community because, A, this is super fun and like passionate. And like, I can tell like we all like doing this, but also like it's a great career and like lifestyle choice. You get to see so much cool stuff. 100% agree. And thank you for the compliment, sir. But before I get you out of here, what I do with the show also is I don't, I mean, we talk shop for a lot of it, but I'm also big on work-life balance. So what are some of your hobbies outside of security? So right now I'm playing a lot of like video games and a lot of d and I'm probably playing too much d and I have a lot of fun with it. I play a lot with like my dad and my cousin. So it's a good like time to like bond with the family and then we can be creative. So it's fun. Nice. Yeah. I'm trying to get back into a little bit of gaming myself, starting off slow with like Overwatch. I want to jump into League, but I'm just getting back sometime and I don't want to then neglect everything for to play League. I definitely believe that balance is necessary coming from someone who was doing the complete opposite two years ago. You can get so sucked into InfoSec. I think it's good because I think a lot of people learn a lot, but yeah, it's just remember it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to be here for a long time. And with that piece of advice, what other advice would you give to any anyone looking to get into InfoSec or making that transition from your red and blue to a purple team? 
it's easier than you think. It seems daunting, but I think like a lot of InfoSec people are just like smart people that can sit there and think about a problem. And if that sounds like you, then give it a shot because it's probably easier than you think. And we need the people. We definitely need the people. (laughs) We definitely need the people. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap. So Dan, thank you again. I know you are busy. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your experiences here with Hacker Valley. Thank you for writing the book. And again, just thanks for being awesome. And I see you on Twitter and stuff like that. Thank you for just being a beacon of how to do things the right way in a field where you can be swayed to do things the wrong way. But for those who want more information about you, why don't you tell them how to find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Injection, one N-J-C-E-T-I-O-N. And then my book, as Davin mentioned, Adversarial Tradecraft and Cybersecurity, you can find it on Amazon. Other than that, I write a blog at Lockbox, L-O-C-K-B-O-X-X dot org. I write there all the time. So if you want to see my latest thoughts or comment on something, go there. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And thank you all for watching or listening or however you are consuming this podcast. This has been another episode of Hacker Valley Blue. I have been your host, Davin Jackson. This has been my guest, Dan Borges. Please remember to like, share, subscribe, comment, get the algorithm going wherever you're watching this. And also, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and check out the Discord server. There's a lot of cool information and a lot of cool people over there. And a lot of the Hacker Valley family hang out on that Discord server. So you could talk to me, you could talk to Chris, Ron, you could talk to any of the other hosts and we could just chop it up. So until next time, everybody stay safe and see you on the next episode of Hacker Valley Blue. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hacker Valley Blue. If you did, please remember to like it, subscribe to the channel, share it with your friends and colleagues and family members, get it all out there and make sure you tune in for the next episode. Also remember to join our Discord server and you can talk to me and some of the other Hacker Valley family. So make sure you go check us out over there too. And I will see you next time. Peace.